Alrighty, take your Bible, hold it up, and repeat after me. This is God's Word. I believe it is true. It shows me how to know God and how to live for God. It has the power to change my life. Now turn with me in God's Word to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. In about two and a half weeks, on a Wednesday, we're starting House of Prayer. It will be from 6 to 7.15 every Wednesday night. We will still have Awana. We will still have student activities. But for adults, this is the only thing that we will do from 6 to 7.15. This is vital. This is important. Now, some of you remember the, the old-fashioned prayer meetings of old. You'd come together on a Wednesday night and you'd gather, you'd share some prayer requests, you'd pray for a couple of minutes, and then you'd have a Bible study. That's not this. At House of Prayer, we're going to have intense, guided, specific prayer and praise. We believe that God is going to use House of Prayer to literally change us and change the world. Now, some of you are probably asking, why are we doing this? Why is this so important? Well, here's why. Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. Jesus made it clear that prayer is to be a vital part of who we are as his people. The early church was committed to prayer. We see that in Acts chapter 1. We see it in Acts chapter 4. We see it in Acts chapter 12. We see it throughout the book of Acts. We see it throughout all of the epistles, the letters of Paul. The early church prayed. And God answers prayer. Jesus said this. He said, you have not because you ask not. John said this in 1 John chapter 5. He said, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us and we know that if he hears us, we have what we have asked from him. James said it this way. He said, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and it's effective. You see, God doesn't move in response to needs. If he did, there would be no needs on planet earth. The Bible teaches us that God moves in response to our prayers. And so it's vital that you and I, as God's people, pray. Now what's amazing to me is Jesus, God's Son, God in the flesh, saw that prayer was important to the point that he began his earthly ministry with a time of extended prayer. He ended his earthly ministry with a time of prayer. And all in between, he lived a life of prayer. He prayed early in the morning. He prayed all throughout the night. He prayed for people and he prayed with people. Prayer was important to Jesus. That's why this morning I want us to, to look at a prayer that Jesus prayed and discover how you and I can pray like Jesus. Now, now I call this prayer the Lord's Prayer, but it's not the one that many of you learned as a child. You know, if you're my age or, 
or older, you learned the Lord's Prayer. And you even repeated it in school. You repeated it in, at sporting events, all of those things. That's not the prayer I'm talking about. That wasn't the Lord's Prayer. That's a model prayer. That was a prayer that, that Jesus gave to his disciples when they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. The prayer that we're going to look at this morning is a prayer that Jesus prayed. As a matter of fact, it is the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus. And it's the longest recorded prayer in God's Word. Now, if you're familiar with the book of John, you, you know that John 17 is part of, of this passage of Scripture where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death, his resurrection, and his return to heaven. In John chapter 13, we, we discover that he begins Passover with his disciples by washing their feet and, and teaching them what true leadership is all about. And then beginning in chapters 14, 15, and 16, he talks to them about heaven and, and the power of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling spirit in our life. But then as we get to chapter 17, it says this, after he said these things, then we read this prayer. And so in chapter 17, this entire chapter, we see a prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples. It's so important that I want us to read all 26 verses. And so if your Bible's open, you can read along with me. If not, you can look there on the screen. But beginning in verse 1, it says this. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything I have is a gift from you, for I passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it and know that I came from you, and they believe you sent me. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me. Because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you. And you have given them to me. So they bring me glory. Now that I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world. But I am coming to you. Holy Father you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name. So that they will be united just as we are. During my time here I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that no one was lost except the one headed for destruction as the scriptures foretold. Now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with joy. I've given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. 
And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you and I, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. and, And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Oh, righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. Now, this chapter teaches some incredible truths. Some truths, to be honest with, that if we looked at them in detail, we could could spend a month or more on this one chapter. We discover here that, that knowing Jesus is the only way to eternal life. We discover here that that Jesus existed before he was ever born in Bethlehem. Before the ever the world ever began, Jesus was here. There are also some things in this passage that that are kind of difficult to understand. There are questions that are raised as we read some of the things that that Jesus prayed here. And I apologize in advance that that we don't have time to look at detail in these. But I believe the most important thing that that we need to look at this morning is what we can discover from Jesus about how to pray. Because if prayer was so important to Jesus that he spent some of his last hours here on earth interceding for his disciples, then it's something that you and I need to learn how to do. Now, as you read these 26 verses, you discover that it easily breaks down into three sections. First of all, Jesus prays for himself. He's praying for the task that God has given him to complete. And he's praying that he completes this task. And the task is none other than to go to the cross and to die for our sins. And then he prays specifically for his disciples, those who have followed him for his three-year ministry here on this earth. And then finally, he prays for everyone who will become a disciple. He prays for the church, the body of Christ, all who will ever believe. Now you may say, well, who are those? How do we know who will believe? We don't know. And so what do we do? We pray for everybody so that Those who will believe, will believe. But as we look at this passage this morning, there are two questions that I think, if we answer them correctly, they will help us more effectively pray. The first question is this, to whom did Jesus pray? And the second question is this, what did Jesus pray for? Now the first question I want us to answer is this, to whom did Jesus pray? And there's really three things that we see. Notice what it says here. The very first word out of Jesus' mouth was this, Father. 
He prayed, Father. That, to me, implies intimacy. Now, granted, Jesus had a unique relationship with God, the Father. He had been with the Father from eternity past. He had always existed with the Father as one, and they were in an intimate relationship. And yet, the Bible makes it clear that you and I are to pray to God as our Father. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 6. He said, when you pray, begin this way, our Father who is in heaven. Now granted, Jesus' intimacy is perhaps a little different than our intimacy. But as we pray to our Father, it is saying that we have an intimate, personal relationship with the Father. You see, God isn't some impersonal force out there that we pray to. He is a loving Father that longs to have a relationship with us. But here's what you need to understand. God isn't the Father of everyone. There are some who think that. There are some who say that. They say, well, God's the Father of everybody. No, He's not. Jesus said in John 8, when He was speaking to the Pharisees, He said, you are of your Father, the devil. God is the creator of everyone. God is the maker of everyone. But God is not the father of everyone. The only way God becomes our father is when we are born into his family, adopted into his family, and we become a part of his family. And the only way that that can happen is through Jesus. In John 14, the uh, chapter several before this, Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus was saying, I am the only way that you can ever get to the Father. And so if you want a relationship with the Father, you have to have it through the Son, Jesus. And so when we pray to the Father, it's implying a relationship that we know Him. But understand, I believe that it is implying that we have an intimate relationship with someone. You see, when you're intimate with someone, you talk to them about things other than surface issues. I mean, you can talk to people you're not intimate about with about anything. You can talk to people that you're not intimate about or intimate with about your needs. But when you're intimate with someone, you talk to them about your heart. You talk to them about what is important in your life. And that's what God wants us to do. God wants us to be so intimate with Him that we see Him as a Father where we not only come up to Him and tell Him what we need, but we tell Him our heart. And we have these conversations with Him. He wants that relationship with us. So Jesus prayed to the Father, that implies intimacy. Jesus pray, prayed to the only true God, that implies exclusivity. We see that in verse 3. You see, the God of the Bible is, is not just one manifestation of God. He's not just one of many gods. The God of the Bible is the only true God. And so when we pray, we don't pray to whoever is out there. We don't just throw up our prayers and hope that someone out there will answer our prayers. That's how some of us pray. 
We just throw up our prayers and hoping they'll stick somewhere. We just throw the Hail Mary and, and hope that somebody answers. We, we put out as many hooks as we can and hoping that someone out there will answer our prayer. That's not how we pray powerful prayers. If you want to pray powerful prayers, you've got to understand that the one you're praying to is the only true God. And if he doesn't answer your prayers, your prayers will not be answered. Several years ago, one of the first times that I went to India with one of our mission teams, Pastor Steve and I were, were in a Hindu temple. And, and as I was in that Hindu temple, I began to share the gospel, the good news, with a Hindu priest. And he didn't respond to the gospel. But after I shared, I asked, can I pray for you? And he allowed me to pray for him. And I prayed that his eyes would be opened, that the Holy Spirit of God would would break through and he would realize that Jesus is the only way to God, that there aren't many ways. And after I prayed, he looked at me and said, can I pray for you? And I said, no. Now, now some of you are going to say, well, Rocky, you're rude. No, I'm not. I mean, if, if I believe he's praying to a false god, why would I want to enter into that? If I believe that his prayers are wasting time, why would I want to encourage that? Understand I was respectful. I said, no, here's why. And then I proceeded to share with him why I, I didn't need him to pray for me, but I appreciated his thought. You see, I, I believe when I pray that the one I'm praying to is the only true God, and he is the exclusive one that can meet the needs of my life. What about you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're without hope apart from him? Jesus prayed to the Father implying that he was intimate with him. He prayed to the only true God implying that the only one that could answer his prayers, the exclusive one, was the God of heaven and earth. And then he prayed to the holy and righteous God. We see this in verses 11 and 25. And this, this implies two things. It implies the need for purity and reverence on our part. David asked this question in Psalm 24. He said, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? And then he answered the question, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Did you hear that? Who can climb the hill of God? Who can stand in his holy presence? Only the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. That implies, listen, that I can only go before God with a spirit of purity. Later on, David said in, in Psalm 66, If I have sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The prophet Isaiah said in, in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, The Lord's arm is not too weak that he can't save. His ears are not deaf, but it's your sins that have separated you from God, so that he will not hear your prayers. I don't think we realize the seriousness of our unconfessed sin. We break God's law. We rebel against his rules. And, and then we have a problem. We have a need. We have a hurt. And we cry out to God expecting God to answer us. 
It's as if we spit in his face and then we say, hey, can you help me? I'm blown away. I'm blown away by the prayer requests that I see on Facebook. People that are living in sin with no desire to repent, asking God to meet their need. Newsflash, he's not. Because our sins separate us from God so that he will not hear. That's why it is so important that we come clean before God. That's why John said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've got to become pure before God as we're coming before God. And then it also implies reverence. I'm afraid that we've become way too casual in the way we approach God. I, I think a lot of us picture God this way. We picture prayer as, as a young child going up to God the Father and sitting in his lap. And, you know, he puts his arm around us and holds us. And, and then we just tell him everything we want. And, and that's a good picture of prayer. But hear me, it's not the only picture. Because when we pray, we are entering into the throne room of God. God. Almighty God. The maker of heaven and earth. When you pray, you are going before God. You're having an audience with God. And you don't do that casually. You don't do that Flippantly, you do that with reverence and awe and respect. So, to whom did Jesus pray? Pray to the Father. That implied intimate relationship. He prayed to the only true God. That implied exclusivity. He is the only one who can meet our needs. And he prayed to the holy and righteous God. We need to become pure as we approach the throne. And we need to be reverent as we approach the throne. But the second question is this. For what did Jesus pray? And I think you're going to discover that Jesus' prayers were different than most of our prayers. First of all, he prayed for God's glory. His prayer wasn't first and foremost for his safety. It wasn't for his protection. It wasn't that his needs would be met. He prayed for God's glory. Notice verse 1. Glorify your son so that he can give glory back to you. One of the evidences of immature praying is me-focused praying. Did you hear me? One of the evidences of immature praying is me-focused praying. It's always about me. My desires, my wants, my needs, my wishes. I want you to listen. God's concerned about your needs. God wants to meet them. I, I believe scripture is very clear that God even wants to rain down his blessings on your life. So don't miss what I'm saying there. I believe God wants to meet your needs. I believe God wants to bless you. In Matthew 7, Jesus said this. He said, 
keep on asking and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open. Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks the door will be open. And then he said this. Listen to what he said. He said, you parents, if, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you, sinful people, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to you, to those who ask Him? God loves to bless us. But as we grow in our relationship with God, and we discover the heart of God, our prayer requests no longer focus on our health and our comfort and our needs. Our prayer requests begin to focus on the glory of God, God's glory. And everything else is a distant second to God's glory. How's your prayer life? Are your prayers focusing on what you want? What you need God to do? Or are your prayers focused on how God can receive glory regardless of what happens. Jesus said, Father, glorify your son so that you can receive glory. How was the son going to be glorified? By going to a cross. Do you think that was comfortable? Do you think it was easy? Do you think it was fun? It was none of those things. But Jesus wasn't concerned about comfort. He wasn't concerned about ease. He was concerned about glorifying the Father. And that's what you and I need to do. In any and every situation, when the bottom falls out and it rains night and day and everything that can go wrong does go wrong and we are living the life of Job where we lose it all, what do we do? We say, God, how can you receive glory in this? Show me. And then let your will be done. Jesus prayed for God's glory. Next, Jesus prayed for our protection. Verse 11, he said, protect them by the power of your name. In verse 14, he said, the world hates them. In verse 15, he says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. So, so understand, as Jesus is speaking here and he's praying for his disciples, he's not praying primarily for physical protection. He's praying spiritual protection for them. Keep them safe from the evil one. I, I don't think we truly understand the spiritual battle that is raging in the unseen realm. We have an enemy that is powerful and wants to destroy us. And he has an army that is large and powerful. And they want to destroy us. That's why the Apostle Paul said, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. And so when we're praying protection, we're praying primarily in the spiritual realm. Because think about it. If Jesus was praying physical protection for his disciples, he failed as a prayer warrior. They were beaten. They were persecuted. 
They were thrown in prison. They went without. Every one of them ultimately was put to death. If Jesus was praying for their physical protection, his prayers weren't answered, were they? He wasn't praying for physical protection. He was praying for spiritual protection. And we need to focus on that as we pray. Third, Jesus prayed for our unity. Verse 11, protect them so they will be united just as we are. Verse 21, I pray they will be one. Verse 22, I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one. Verse 23, may they experience perfect unity. Over and over and over again, Paul says, I pray that they will be one. I pray that they will live in unity. I pray that they will be unified. I don't think we understand the power of a unified church. Jesus said, I pray that they will be one so that the world will believe. There's nothing that the world needs to see more than a unified church. There's nothing that scares Satan more than a unified church. But what does that mean? Unified. Does that mean that we have to agree on every single thing? No. We can't. We won't. But being unified means that we're going to walk hand in hand, arm in arm, as we do two things. As we agree on what we believe, and as we agree on what we're to accomplish. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. What you believe, what you do. You see, we need to be united around this book. If someone calls himself a Christian and says, well, I, I don't really believe this part of the Bible, then I can't be united with them. But if you believe the Word, we can be united. We may disagree on some passages, and we may disagree on some, some inconsequential things that have to do with exactly how the end is going to take place and all of that, but if you believe this word and you believe that it's God's word and you believe Jesus is the only way to eternal life and you believe he's coming again, then we can walk in unity. And, and then we're not simply united in what we believe, we're united in what we do, our purpose. And Jesus gave us that, right? He said, go into the world and make disciples. Isn't that our purpose? Isn't it? I mean, does anybody question the purpose? what we're given to do right and so what Jesus is saying in the word is we need to be united and there are two things that unite us his word unites us and his purpose unites us and so we need to pray for unity and then fourth Jesus prayed for our holiness he said make them holy by your truth your word is truth so how do we become holy Make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. How do we become holy? We become holy by getting into God's word and then allowing God's word to get into us. When we dig deep into God's word, what happens, according to Hebrews 4, is that God's word begins to dig deep into us correcting the things that are wrong, making them right so that we can be the people God wants us to be. 
So he said, make them holy. And then finally, Jesus prayed that the world would believe. In, in verse 18, he said, just as you sent me in the world, I am sending them out into the world. So Jesus prayed that we would be obedient to the task that he's given us to do. So, so why are we looking at this passage? Because prayer changes things. What the world needs now more than ever is not better educated Christians, but praying Christians who believe in the power of prayer. In 1857, there was a layman businessman. His name was Jeremy Lanfear. He moved to New York City because he just felt like God needed to do a work there. And he began going door to door and sharing the gospel and nothing was happening. And so he began to pray. And God laid on his heart to start prayer meetings at 12 o'clock noon on Wednesday afternoons. And so he publicized that they were going to have a prayer meeting. The very first one they had, September the 23rd, 1857, six people were there. But they prayed. The next Wednesday they met again, there were 20 people there. And over the course of the next several weeks and the next several months, those prayer meetings began to mushroom as God's people began to get serious about prayer. And within one year, within one year, because of a group of Christians beginning to pray, over one million people came to faith in Christ. One million. And all I can say is, Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again. Do we need to be educated in His Word? Absolutely. Do we need to be zealous in sharing our faith? Without a doubt. But hear me. All of those things are going to be meaningless if we don't back them with spirit-filled, spirit-guided prayer. And so why are we doing house of prayer? Because we believe it's our only hope. It's the only hope that we have to see our community truly change. It's the only hope we have of seeing our nation experience a revival before it's everlasting too late. It's our only hope for seeing the gospel penetrate the world like we desire the gospel to penetrate the world. We're going to gather together and pray. And God, I hope that we have more than six people here. I hope we have more than a hundred people here. I hope that every adult that isn't helping with a one or our student ministry and can get here off of work in time will be here to join us in prayer and praise seeking the face of God but here's what I know regardless of how many people are here we're gonna pray and we're gonna pray that heaven comes down God's glory fills this place and we're gonna pray until he does and so what am I asking you to do this morning? Well, first and foremost, I'm asking you to commit to individual prayer. We will never have a powerful corporate prayer time unless we have individual powerful prayer time. Would you agree?
So commit to becoming a man or woman or prayer. Second, if there is any way you can be here, commit to being at House of Prayer. And let us see if prayer really does change things. Because I believe with all my heart it does. I want you to bow your head with me. I want you to close your eyes. And with your head bowed, with your eyes closed, I'd be amiss if I didn't take a moment right now before we go any further and invite anyone here who does not know Jesus to receive him. I don't know your heart. I don't know where you're at spiritually. But I imagine there's someone here, probably multiple people here, who have never truly confessed their sin and surrendered to Jesus, trusting him to be their Savior and Lord. So if that's where you're at and right now you know that you need Jesus, the only reason you know that is because Jesus has opened your heart to that. And I want to encourage you right now to humble yourself. Don't resist him. Humble yourself and give your heart and life to him. You can pray this prayer if you mean it with all your heart. Dear Jesus, I come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive me for all of my sins. Forgive me for my rebellion, for living life my way. I'm so tired of it. I don't want to live that way anymore. I know you love me. I believe you died on the cross to save me. Today, right here, right now, I'm trusting you to save me. I'm giving my life to you. Take control. Fill me with your spirit. Make me you, I pray. Amen.